Welcome to the Artisan CEO, where the art of photography meets the business of profits. This is where strategy and craftsmanship coexist so that you can run a creative business that supports a life you love. I'm your host, Abby Grace, and I promise to give it to you straight. Let me just start off by saying, this is not an episode on how to create a budget. So if you're one of those people who hates talking about the B word, have no fear. You can proceed with listening. (laughs) I mean, we are going to talk about money on this episode. So if you need a trigger warning, then there you go. I will use the word money in this episode, maybe even the F word, finances. But that's not all we're going to talk about because finances aren't the only kind of number that you need to be familiar with, right? I've met a lot of creatives over the years who have said things like, oh, I'm, I'm just not a math person. I'm not a numbers person. What am I talking about? I used to be one of those people. But that like, I'm not a numbers person, I learned that that was just a limiting belief. A limiting belief is something that you believe that holds you back, that is not necessarily true, but because you believe that it's true, it ends up being self-sabotaging and self-fulfilling. Are some people born with an intuitive knack for mathematics? Yes. But even if you're a creative, an artist to your core, you can learn to be a numbers person. Moreover, being a small business owner means you must learn to be, at the very least, literate in these key numbers that we're about to discuss. Just because something's scary or intimidating, that doesn't mean that we get to write it off as something that you're not going to do because, quote, you're just not a numbers person. I mean, like, I'm not a needle person. I faint when I get my blood drawn, literally. But, like, that doesn't make me immune to needing an IV if I'm hospitalized with severe dehydration. I can't just tell my nurse, like, oh, I'm not a needle person and then expect them to find another solution. And here's the cool thing about gritting your teeth and learning to read numbers they're actually super helpful when you look at them because numbers can help you figure out where to go based on where you've been. So they're not they're not just a history book of choices that you've made, choices that condemn you, but they're also a really useful tool in deciding where to step next. Right after graduating from college, I started work with my first and only corporate job. I had a debit card throughout college for incidental expenses, and that was funded by both money I had saved up from before my freshman year, so I had a job in high school, and then I also had a couple of various jobs during my four-year degree, jobs on campus, and then summer jobs. Those all helped to fund this debit card that I used throughout my four years. So then I applied for uh, my first credit card when I got my one and only corporate job in order to start building credit. And I treated it the exact same way that I treated my debit card. I only spent what I knew I had, and then I paid off the balance every month. I never let that carry over from month to month. And yet, (laughs) I would get to the end of each month and see how much I spent and thought, Surely there's no way that was all me. Like someone someone definitely stole my credit card. See that expense right there? There's no way I spent $107 at Target. I spent, hold on, let me find my receipt. I spent, oh yeah, right. I did spend $107. I forgot about that. So I spent money on what I needed when I needed it, but I wasn't exactly careful with my funds. I didn't set budgets for anything. Sorry, just use the B word. I didn't set a budget for anything. I just paid for items as the need arose. I had no plan for my savings other than the recommended percentage of my paycheck going to my 401k. Uh, I didn't have an emergency fund. I wasn't saving for vacation. I mean, I had like vacation time, like PTO, but like I wasn't saving money to actually pay for wherever I wanted to go once I used my PTO. 
And uh, I remember coming to the realization that I was going to need to furnish an apartment for once Matt and I were married because we got engaged while we were in college. I graduated in May of 2010 and then we got married in January of 2011. In that interim time, I lived with my parents to save some money on rent. And I remember it was probably like two months into my day job realizing, oh my gosh, like I have to buy a couch. And I had this massive meltdown about the couch thing. Like, how was I going to afford a couch? Not knowing what sort of goal I was working towards, there was there was really nothing to guide my behavior, my spending behaviors, more than the loose concept of like, don't spend more money than you earn, which is not helpful. Like other than, you know, you get to the end of the month and be like, well, did I spend more than I earned? Nope. Good job, right? <laughs> that would only ever give me a grade of like pass fail instead of helping me see where it is that I should step next. And then, of course, I every few months, I would look at my accounts and panic over why I didn't have more money. And I would feel guilty and stupid, which only made me feel more averse to checking the numbers in the future. Like if this was how bad, how much shame I felt looking at my savings balance once every two to three months, I sure as heck didn't want to be looking at it even more than that, right? Which is counterintuitive. I recognize that now, that that wasn't like a wise position to take. But I remember logging, like sitting in my corporate job and waiting for the page to load on my online banking and like feeling dread curdling my stomach because I just didn't want to know how much was in there. I knew whatever the number was that I was going to feel bad about it. I thought, you know, by not checking these numbers, I thought that if I just had good enough intention for my money, then the savings account would grow on its own. Like if I just sat down and thought hard enough about how I wanted to spend my money then like those good intentions would bleed into my everyday behaviors when I went to Target or when I went to the ball, the mall to pick out new clothing. Um, I have done this so many times in business. If I just have a good enough intention for my email list, it'll grow. If I have good ideas and I want to help people, then the business should just naturally earn more money, right? Well, I'm, maybe, but also maybe not. Like what's the data telling us here? Just hoping something's going to work, knowing you're good at your craft and hoping people will see for themselves or maybe having a course that you know is really good and hoping it'll sell well because the material is awesome, that is not the best way to grow a business. I know. I've tried it. <laughs> Real quick, photographers, are you tired of lather, rinse, and repeating the same tired collection of forgettable photos from one brain session to the next? If you're ready to turn yawn-worthy galleries into the sort of results that thrill your clients and get you both noticed, then you're definitely going to want to join me for my free training, The Backstage Secret to Scroll-Stopping Brand Photography. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or you're just getting started out in the world of branding, this session is for you. I'll teach you my number one strategy for crafting stories that resonate with your clients and their audience, which is the biggest secret behind creating galleries that not only look stunning, but also drive engagement and sales for your clients, which, spoiler alert, is what keeps them coming back for additional sessions in the future. Because as brand photographers, purposeful matters more than pretty, but who says you can't have both? Our job is to think like a marketer and shoot like an artist, but you have to have both pieces of that equation and learning to approach with the mindset of a strategist that changes everything. So if you're raring to say goodbye to cliche galleries that simply repeat what's already clogging your Pinterest and social media and hello to a method that drives brand loyalty and real bottom line growth, then head on over to abbygrace.co slash training. That's abbygrace.co slash training. 
it's time to leave those forgettable, smiling at a laptop photos in the dust in favor of a more tailored approach that's gonna leave your clients obsessed and already planning for their next shoot with you. One more time, that's abbygrace.co slash training. I'll see you in class. I've had disappointing launches because I didn't check the standard conversion data. Heck, that happened to us last September. I had crazy high hopes for our September launch of Brand Photography Academy, and we fell short of my goal by 50%. We had half the new students that I was hoping for. But then when I was talking to my coach and I told her my original goal, her response was literally, she said, uh, where did you get that number from? Because your email list size does not support that many new students, according to industry standard conversion rates. Fun fact, Abby, there's a thing called standard conversion rates that's pretty even across industries that I am subject to as well. Meanwhile, I had spent all of that launch week stressing out even more than what's normal for launch week, brought to tears at points because I was so frustrated by what I thought were lackluster results and not knowing why it was happening and feeling like a complete failure only to realize that our conversion rates were actually really, really good. And if I wanted to increase our registrations, then the data told me I needed to focus on growing our list. Oh, well, that's doable. So like, I'm not a failure? No, I was just looking at the wrong numbers. I was looking at the lag indicators, not the lead indicators. Lead indicators are the actions needed to accomplish a certain goal. So like if I want to get healthy, one of my lead indicators is going to be how many times per week I'm doing cardio. That's something I'm 100% in control of. I can decide, okay, I want to get healthy. My current plan isn't working. I'm going to up the number of times that I'm doing cardio per week. Lag indicators measure your performance during and after the fact. They're easy to measure, but difficult to change without first changing your lead indicators. So going with the health example, I might measure how well I'm doing on my goal by keeping an eye on my BMI or my blood pressure or my weight or my measurement in inches. Lag indicators are only going to tell you after the fact, which is helpful for informing future action, but it doesn't do anything to help you predict how a particular action is going to play out. You can't gamble your business on just hoping your lag indicators will work out. You have to know what kind of proactive activity is going to lead to the results that you're looking for before the results start to roll in. That way you can change your actions before the lag results begin to roll in, which remember, those are difficult to change. And that way when you change those lead indicators, you're gonna hopefully influence the final output. So in the example about disappointing course registrations, I needed to focus on my lead indicator of the number of people on our email list. That was dynamic. That was you know something that I could change based on my marketing actions, more of that in the next episode. And by measuring and influencing those lead indicators, I could ideally produce a more desirable lag indicator. And there are particular actions I know I can do to get more people on my email list. I've done it before, we can do it again. There's also standard industry practices that typically yield a higher number of email subscribers. So if I know the standard conversion rate for our industry is based on the number of email subscribers we have. And the number of course registrations that we have is ultimately based on how many people are on our newsletter list. 
I can influence the newsletter list number. So that's what I'm going to focus on for the next time. I'm getting in the weeds here. Let's refocus. So if I were starting my business over tomorrow with what I know now, these are the numbers that I would make sure to figure out and track from the very beginning. First, monthly operating expenses and income. We touched on this in the last episode, the concept of a profit and loss statement. So go take a listen to episode 10 if you're not familiar with that term. It is crucial to keep track of how much you're spending versus earning from the very beginning because it is way too easy to overstretch your finances in the name of, well, I'm building a business. You know, you got to spend money to make money. Yes, you do, but like that can be a really slippery slope, so be careful there. Personally, I don't spend money on my business that I do not already have. We pay our credit card off every month, and if we take on a big expense, like when I joined my mastermind, I wanted to have a plan for how I was going to bring in the additional money in order to pay for it. I grew up really afraid of money because I grew up in a home where money was an uncomfortable subject. Without giving you my entire life story, my parents were planning to be missionaries, and so when I was probably four years old, we picked up and left from our home in Northern Virginia and moved down to Florida so that my parents could attend seminary, which meant that we went from being a single-income household, three kids, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, to being a part-time income household because my dad was a full-time seminary student and worked part-time as a counselor. And so money was always tight. There was never quite enough of it, right? We never went hungry or anything like that. But like, I just remember money being a subject that was fraught with tension in our home. I remember being aware as like an eight or nine year old that finances were tight. And I remember overhearing a couple of conversations. I hope my mom and dad don't listen to this podcast. (laughs) But I remember overhearing conversations on a few occasions about the credit card bill being higher than expected. And just the, I mean, the tension was so thick, you could cut it with a knife. And so I have a fear of carrying debt over from one month to the next for normal operating expenses. So that's a line I don't cross. We pay our credit card bill off every month. Your attitude towards debt might be completely different than mine, and that's okay. But I would just say have a plan there for however you plan to take on debt or don't take on debt, that that is intentional and purposeful, not something that you accidentally find yourself backed in to a wall about. I don't know if like finances carry the same kind of disclaimer like I'm not a lawyer so you know if you have questions about this seek out a lawyer. I'm obviously not a financial advisor. You should talk to someone who is very skilled in finances if you need more information on that but that is at a bare minimum our take on when it comes to operating expenses that we don't take on more than we can pay off each month. We run a profit and loss statement each month but I'm actually more interested in the yearly total divided by 12 averaged out throughout the year because, and anybody who works in any kind of seasonal work will tell you the same thing, some months we earn more than others and some months we spend more than others. So like the month before a brand photography academy launch, the expenses are going to be higher there because we've boosted our Facebook ad spend. And then the month of a launch, our income is going to be higher than usual because we have this huge wave of new students. Many of them are paying for their registration in full. If you've never tracked this before, that is okay. You're not too late. You can start now by looking back on previous month's bank statements and credit card statements. We use, and I say we, Matt. Matt does all of this for our business. Matt uses the software Wave Apps, W-A-V-E Apps, to track both income and expenses so that like, if I start hyperventilating during one of Matt's monthly presentations of a P&L statement, 
he can remind me that we're still on track to make our yearly goals. Or maybe we're not on track to make our yearly goals. And then that influences what kind of marketing activity we set up for the following quarter. You know, the, the important thing here is that you don't set goals in January and then not look at your numbers until, you know, December 22nd before you shut down for Christmas and realize, oh my gosh, I... I undershot my goals by thousands and thousands of dollars and I don't know what happened. You have to keep track of where the money's coming in and going out so that you can make smaller adjustments along the way. So like, let's say you get to June and you're off the pace by $20,000. Like, okay, that's that's not an unmanageable number. And I know that $20,000 is a lot of money, but like you still have six months to make up the difference. Like there's a lot that you can do in six months. See, this is where being familiar with the numbers is not a condemning thing. This is a freeing thing because it means you can control what you do from there on out to influence that final lag indicator instead of getting to December and beating yourself up for where did all my money go or how do I not have more to show for this? I know that money and numbers can be scary. You're talking to the girl who used to hate checking her bank account statement because I was afraid of what that number would say about me. But the more literate we are about these numbers, the more informed our decisions can be moving forward and the more profitable you can choose to be. This is not a luck of the draw kind of thing. It's not up to fate. It's not like you set your goals in January and then just be like, well, I've said my goals to the universe. The universe has heard them. It's now up to the universe on whether or not I make these goals. I'll check back in in December. No. By being informed and staying literate, you can help course correct along the way. Getting off my soapbox, the next number to track, how many hours does each type of project require? This is important to know for a few reasons. One, so that you can accurately gauge how many projects you can take on within the amount of time that you have available. Two, so that you know what a discount is actually going to cost you. And three, because I'm going to be straight with you, you're probably undervaluing your time as of now. So for local full day branch shoots, I spend an hour of 21.75 hours. Half day shoots are 17.75 hours, only four hours less time that I spend on a half day shoot than a full day shoot. So when I'm pricing my services, if it's time to make a jump or if you're initially pricing your services, that helps remind you, remind me in this situation, that even though a half day shoot is 50% of the shooting time, my half day shoots are three hours, my full day shoots are six hours, even though the half day shoot is 50% of the shooting time, the prep and post-production time is very, very similar. So my pricing for half-day shoots cannot be half of a full-day shoot. It needs to be closer to 65 to 75% of the full-day cost. Knowing how many hours a project is going to cost you is going to inform your pricing and then also help save you from discounting your services when you know you shouldn't, but maybe you're a people pleaser who has a hard time saying no. <laughs> Knowing that number of hours that you're going to spend on that project is not going to change, even if you give a discount, that can make a big difference in your resolve to stand by your prices. Knowing your hourly commitment is also going to help you more realistically estimate what you can and cannot afford to schedule. So instead of looking at your calendar and seeing, hey, look, I have a date open on Wednesday the 30th, I can totally book a new client for that date. Instead, you're going to learn to look for what else is happening around that date that's also going to claim some of your bandwidth because a brand shoot isn't just one day on the calendar. 
I have to have margin before a shoot to work on my shot list, to get creative and dream up new ideas for my clients. I have to have margin afterwards to be able to have time to import and call those photos so I can send them over to my editor and then time to proof the gallery, upload it and deliver it to my client. I have a hard time getting creative before a shoot if I'm out of my office every day for various shoots and meetings. I've got to have margin. So knowing how many hours that a new project is going to cost helps me more realistically estimate the time surrounding my shoots. And then that leads to the next number. How many bookings do you need per year based on your annual income goals? This is something Matt and I decided at the beginning of the year. How much are we hoping to make? And then from that, how many brand shoots do we need to book balanced with how many can I reasonably shoot? That yearly calendar hangs on the wall in my office and it has that number of how many shoots I need because we break it up like how many full day brand shoots do I need to book and how many half day brand shoots do I need to book? That's at the very top of my yearly calendar that hangs on the wall. And if it's looking like we're off track, let's say we get to June and I'm, you know, 25% off the pace, then I can change my actions based on the lead indicators that prove to be most useful. Again, more on that on the marketing aspect in the next episode. I'm really excited for episode 12. (laughs) So I used to think back in my wedding photographer days that It wasn't really up to me whether I reached my yearly goal of the number of weddings I booked. I thought that was more of a luck of the draw kind of thing because I couldn't exactly go out and pitch individual wedding clients like I can for brand clients. Uh, I felt like I had very little control when my bookings were down and there was nothing I could do about it. And turns out that's not exactly true. It's not even actually close to being true. I just at the time had not identified which levers in my business were making the biggest difference. So when things were slow, that means I didn't know which lever to pull to get things moving again. Not so anymore. That doesn't mean that we don't still have inexplicable slowdowns or that I always hit every single one of my goals, but it does mean that when things are slow, I'm better at figuring out why uh, and then pinpointing an action I can take or a behavior that I can change to get them moving again. Like I've come to realize over the last year that Google searches account for 25% of my brand clients. People searching Google for brand photographer or best brand photographer and then my website pops up on the first page. They head to my site, they like what they see, they inquire, they get on a sales call, I prove the value of what I offer, and then they book. These are people who do not follow me on social media. They've never heard of me before they find me on Google. They have not been hearing my name for years. And those people account for one quarter of my bookings, which was unheard of for me as a wedding photographer because there was so many other people in my industry. I I have, I don't even know what page I was on of Google when I was a wedding photographer. And you know why Google searches account for 25% of my bookings? Because I've been blogging for a long, long time, even if it's not as consistent as it used to be. So then knowing that, knowing that those blog posts directly feed into how many people find me on Google, that lights a fire to keep my blog updated with recent shoots. Even if it means I'm going weeks between posts, I don't care If other people are saying the blogging is dead, it's feeding my SEO. So I'm going to keep doing it because that's a lever that's working for me. Final number for today, you need to know your conversion rates on sales calls. This is as simple as the number of clients that you book per year divided by the number of sales calls that you get on. 
why is this important? And I track I track that with a uh, an app called Calendly. We schedule all of our sales calls through Calendly, and then I can go into Calendly and look up past appointments instead of having to comb through my Google Calendar. So why is this conversion rate important? First of all, because it's probably higher than you think, and I want you to be encouraged by that. I want when you get on a sales call for you to know that you book 75% or 60% or fit, whatever your conversion rate is, that it's it's probably higher than you think, which will give you confidence in scheduling and then getting on those sales calls. And then secondly, because if that conversion rate is lower than you're happy with, you can get help for it. You could hire a sales coach, you could take a class on selling, you could develop a script for your calls. This is something I use with every sales call. That's part of my standard procedure before I get on a sales call is I go into my Google Docs and I pull up my template for the sales call roadmap and then I copy that into a new Google Doc, same one that I'm gonna use to take notes about the client's call. Um, And why do I do this? Because I found a system that works. I have my sales call roadmap, and then I've got a specific set of questions that I ask in a very specific order. And then I spend a lot of time getting to know my client's business on that call. Then after I finish asking my questions, I talk about what sets me apart as a brand photographer. I describe my proven process, present my pricing, and then nine times out of 10, truly, I have over a 90% close rate on sales calls. That call ends with me letting the client know that our team will be sending over the contract. I know I can close on the phone. I'm good at it. So if our bookings are slow, I know that it's just a matter of me needing to get more inquiries, which, like I said, I used to think was just a luck of the draw kind of thing, but not anymore. I know that I can drive inquiries by attending events in person. That's a really good place for me to find new brand clients. I know that I can follow up with past brand clients. I know that I can post on social media and more. Again, more on that in the next episode. There's there's not one lever in my business that results in a sudden like you just won the jackpot onslaught of new inquiries but I know which lead indicators can keep me top of mind and because I know that once the sales call is scheduled that I'm 90% there I'm more motivated to do the type of marketing activity that can feel very hard to connect to a final result, like posting on Instagram or blogging or applying to speak at a conference. I put off blogging a lot because it's not urgent, but it's really important for my marketing game. And so I actually just just last night printed out a few paper calendars. I used to blog every day and I used these paper calendars on my wall behind my desk and I would just fill in what I wanted to blog about each day. And I loved that practice. I got away from that when I stopped blogging every day because I felt like blogging wasn't driving as much traffic as a wedding photographer because it wasn't. But when we pivoted over to branding and I'm realizing how many of our clients are coming to us via Google because of my blog, I realized I need to be blogging more consistently. And it's not because I love going on and seeing the daily number of views spike because they they don't spike that much. People aren't reading blogs daily the way that they used to. But I know that when I blog And when I, more specifically, when I blog consistently, I get more consistent results on Google, even if it's, you know, a couple months down the road. If your sales conversions are lower than you're happy with, specifically your sales calls, I want you to examine how much value and expertise you're demonstrating on that call. Are you presenting a couple of ideas for the client's shoot? Are you talking about a storyline that you think might be a good idea for them or a particular place you think might really suit their brand vibe? Are you showing that you know what you're talking about? 
Are you walking them through your proven process to set expectations about what it will look like for them to work with you? And as a result, that demonstrates that you have a system and you are not just flying by the seat of your pants. It isn't enough to get on a call and simply answer their questions. You have to steer that ship. Ask the kind of questions that are going to start to reveal the client's brand identity because not only is that going to fuel what you eventually shoot at their session, it's also going to demonstrate your authority that you even know to ask those questions in the first place. The purpose for all these numbers is to make you a more informed, intentional business owner. Instead of accidentally racking up all of these hours of work because you didn't calculate how much time you'd actually need for pre-shoot research and post-shoot production, or maybe spending beyond your means and accruing a bunch of debt that you'll end up regretting, being well-versed in your numbers allows you to plan for when you're going to be busy and when you'll have margin instead of accidentally being up to your eyeballs and work 365 days a year. Numbers are not your enemy. Even when you're an artist and you feel like your work is on the opposite end of the spectrum from the math side of things, the less afraid you are of facing your numbers, the better you're going to be able to predict your income and know when to course correct and how to do that. And you'll be able to make decisions that will have the biggest payoff instead of clinging to the hope for the best strategy that might end up leaving you, well, you know what they say about good intentions. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode and head over to abbygrace.co slash podcast for even more resources to help you blow your clients away at your very next brand shoot. I'm Abby Grace and I'll see you next time. Now, let's go get after it, shall we?